Hello, Sublation Media viewers. <clears throat> it's I, Douglas Lane. Um, today we're going to be talking about Caleb Maupin. Uh, he is a controversial figure on the left. Um, to be honest, I don't know a lot about him. He uh, His reputation precedes him. I've heard that he is a MAGA communist, that he's a patriotic, patriotic socialist. Um, it seems that the viewers of this channel uh the people who tune in for the stream uh, have some opinions about him at the outset as well we have um ben zur saying that what caleb Maupin really thinks is that um he's the next martin luther king that's a sarcastic comment captain snackbeard says he thinks if this can't get hit me laid nothing will uh i guess indicating that uh, caleb Maupin's politics are not sincere Joseph Grosso says, you guys couldn't find someone better to talk to than this crackpot? Uh, I guess not. Um, someone, uh, the Donarchist, uh, Danarchist says, who is Caleb Muppet and why should I care what Caleb thinks? Well, let's find out. Um, and then, of course, uh, Reclaimed Dasein, the uh, Heideggerian Stalinist, says it's someone trying to get attention done um now perhaps all that's true i don't know we'll find out on the other side of this uh, intro what we have is a pretty uh detailed and uh long interview with caleb Maupin that uh ashley frawley who's not here live on the stream but who will be on screen in just a moment she inter interviewed him and recorded that interview just the other day and we'll we'll be seeing that on the other side of this intro in the case of nuclear or radiological fallout people living around potential targets such as military bases and chemical plants may be advised to evacuate all right so this is the sublation magazine show today as i said we have an interview between ashley frawley and caleb Maupin. uh uh, we will find out what Caleb Maupin thinks. And after the interview, I'll have a uh, parrot room where Patreon supporters, our patrons, uh, will be invited to participate. So you can go to the Patreon, find the link to StreamYard, and join in. The first nine people who show up uh, in the green room for StreamYard will be brought onto the stream. And we'll talk about both Caleb Maupin mopping and um the interview but also we will discuss other current events and uh things of interest to socialists in america so here is the caleb mopping interview caleb mopping i'm the founder of the center for political innovation i'm a journalist with international television um i've also written a number of different books uh, i call myself an anti-imperialist a 21st century socialist an advocate of international friendship and cooperation. You initially got in touch because I did a podcast called What is Libertarian Communism? And you mentioned that you had a, a slightly different take on that. So uh, what is for you libertarian communism? Is that a word that you like to use or do you prefer something different? Well, it's of interest to me because libertarians are something that have been on my political radar for quite some time. Uh, and as somebody who came at things from a leftist or socialist perspective, I was often very frustrated. Uh, but I'm at the point where libertarians, especially the Libertarian Party of the United States, is doing some of the most important work that 
I support, whether it's sticking up for our civil liberties, uh, supporting Julian Assange, opposing more weapons being sent to Ukraine, uh, you know, opposing what's happening to the Uhuru movement, which is a group of you know activists in the United States that have been indicted and charged with being Russian agents. Uh, I see libertarians is on the right side of so many issues, um, sticking up for uh, opposing surveillance, for example. Uh, and the Libertarian Party organized a very, very important demonstration last spring uh, called Rage Against the War Machine in Washington, D.C., which you know my, my organization was very happy to sponsor. And so much of the so-called left uh, is just so far from, from where I stand on things. Uh, I find myself lining up with libertarians quite a bit. And it's important to emphasize that the goal uh, of communism or socialism, if you if you read Marx, the goal is a world of so much abundance uh, that the state can fade away. Right. The the idea is we want to get to a world where people can just take what they need and do what they feel like doing from each according to his own ability to each according to his needs. Um, and that is the libertarian ideal: a world without coercion, a world without enforced hierarchies, a world without a state, a world without any real inequality, because there's so much to go around. Uh, however, the road to that vast abundance, I, I would argue, is the abolition of, of capitalism as the organization of society uh, with a centrally planned economy. So in a way, I would argue communists are the true libertarians because they have the road to the post-scarcity society uh, that can create a world without the kind of hierarchies and state coercion that libertarians so strongly object to. Um, however, uh, when it comes to economics, especially uh, between libertarians and myself, there's some some very big disagreements. But in a way, there's not, because the people that I meet that are interested in libertarianism, a lot of them are interested in libertarianism because they believe in economic growth. Uh, and much of the so-called left at this point doesn't believe in economic growth. Uh, they think the problem with capitalism is that it creates growth and that somehow growth is bad. Well, I... I'm with the libertarians. I believe in economic growth. Uh, I don't think that growth is bad. And if you look at the great socialist revolutions of the 20th century, uh, the Soviet Union made Russia into a superpower. They built some of the world's largest power plants. They raised millions of people out of poverty. They invented space travel. China is a great story of economic growth. Uh, they used to be the impoverished sick man of Asia. Now they are the second largest economy on earth. 800 million people lifted from poverty. The world's biggest power plants the world's uh, the world's you know biggest uh, hydroelectrical power plants, the world's biggest steel industry, the world's biggest uh, telecommunications manufacturer. Economic growth is what it's all about, right? We want to have so much economic growth that we can have a society uh, where the state can fade away, where we people can just live as they wish to live. So I'm for economic growth. Libertarians are for economic growth, and the so-called left uh, doesn't seem to believe in economic growth anymore. They are advocating degrowth. Uh, they want to reduce consumption and reduce the population. So so I'm lining up with libertarians in a lot of ways I never thought I would, but I do disagree with them about how the economy should be managed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is music to my ears. Um, I, it, not only do I disagree with libertarians in terms of how the economy should be ma uh, managed, I disagree with them in terms of how it actually works. Um, but we share the same kind of, I mean, an honest libertarian, in my opinion, must become a communist of necessity. I mean, if you truly believe in, in freedom, if you truly believe in growth and wealth and all the things you claim you do, then you should become a communist. But of course, they come from a different, um, kind of economic understanding of how things work. And so it's not, um, the only way to hold on to these things and save, save, you know, hold on to even the partially realized freedoms that we have in capitalism. Um, it, 
um, understand them, their movement and their destruction within capitalism. And for me, that is an, a, an almost inevitable process of destruction. Not almost, I think it is an inevitable process of destruction. And I don't mean that in the sense of like inevitable breakdown and ah, now we have communism and socialism, but a process of destruction in terms of crises, in terms of war, this sort of thing. And so it's because I believe in freedom so much that I am a communist, that I don't want my children to die in unnecessary wars. I don't want unnecessary crises where we destroy wealth. I think that's an obvious thing as a communist. And people who claim to be socialists and communists and argue for degrowth, these are Malthusians. These are, these are fundamentally right-wing sorts of people. Because, I mean, that's that, that, this idea of like going back, holding back, rolling back the wheel of history, talking about limits, that is anathema to the progressive spirit out of which Marxism was ultimately birthed that, they began, that began in the 18th century. So all of this seems so obvious to me, <laughs> but why do you think it's, it's been lost on the left? Because I got, you, you go and look at the comments on that video, people were not happy with it. it and even the idea that you would um, use the word libertarian, that you would not see libertarians as a de facto clear enemy, and even that you would praise liberalism is seen as uh, contrary to what the left ought to be about. So yeah, well, there's there's a book that I I cite, um, and you know, I mean, in my my book that I I probably addresses this topic the most is called "Where Is America Going: Marxism, MAGA, and the Coming Revolution." And I I go back to Marx, and what does Marx say the problem with capitalism is? Why is it that capitalism is unsustainable uh, and has to be replaced? Is because of this problem called overproduction that the capitalist is constantly looking to pay the worker as little as he possibly can to produce as many products as he can possibly create. Um, and as technology advances, the role of the worker at the assembly line is decreased uh, and the payout to the worker and the, the spending power of the worker goes down, but the amount of products is constantly increasing uh, and that abundance creates poverty. Uh, that, you know, that I tell people the coal miners riddle. Uh, the little boy says to his father, why is it so cold? And the father says to the boy, because uh, we can't afford any coal to eat the stove. And the, the boy says to the father, why can't we afford any coal? He says, because I lost my job at the coal mine. I've been laid off. He says, why were you laid off from your job at the coal mine? He says, because there is too much coal. And that's the problem of capitalism. In systems of the past, people were homeless because there was a shortage of housing. But in capitalism, people become homeless because there is too much housing. And I remember the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, where that was the reality. People across America were losing their homes. Tent cities were being erected all across the country because there were too many houses, because the American public couldn't afford to keep buying houses at the same rate that they had been buying them. And people were homeless because there were too many houses. People are hungry because there is too much food. Abundance creates poverty. This is not rational. And Marxism says the the answer is to take control of the means of production and the banks, factories and industries and the centers of economic power should be organized according to a central plan. So this problem of overproduction is overcome and that growth is no longer restrained by the irrationality and the artificial restraints of the market. Right. That is the Marxist argument. If you read Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Frederick Engels. Uh, so when people talk about degrowth, uh, that's not Marxism at all. Marxism is trying to unleash the productive forces so that growth is no longer restrained. However, and I often reference, um, and in this book I quote, uh, there's a book called The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. 
uh, that was an attempt to try and explain what the political crisis of the 1960s was. Um, and it echoes Carol Quigley, who was like an, a mentor to Bill Clinton, who was an academic. Um, it echoes some other analysis that has gone on that argues that in American politics, uh, there has been a fight between the ultra-rich, what you can call the Eastern establishment, the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Carnegies, the ultra-rich families that are entrenched, that tend to be involved in the oil industry and are you know, dominating certain Wall Street banks, and the lower levels of capital, many of which are tied in with the military-industrial complex and military manufacturing. Um, and that the lower levels of capital tend to be conservatives. These are the forces behind the John Birch Society and, and some of the far-right groups that emerged in the United States in the 1950s uh, and McCarthyism and the more liberal Eastern establishment. Uh, and they tend to be behind the, the more liberal think tanks, uh, you know, the uh, Institute for Policy Studies, uh, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations. And it, it's, it's that push and pull between the Eastern establishment that wants a very kind of managed, stable society so they can stay at the top, and the lower levels of capital that want complete deregulation because they they want to make money uh, and they're just interested in making money. And that is the push and pull. And that most of the so-called left have kind of reduced themselves to being the foot soldiers of the Eastern establishment, of the ultra-rich and their struggle to contain and restrain the lower levels of capital. And that kind of defines American politics in the Cold War years. Um, and and if you look at it, uh, especially in the 1980s, uh, with the rise of the movement against nuclear power, uh, very much we saw the left being the foot soldiers of big oil, which saw nuclear power as putting them out of business, uh, and saw the military-industrial complex as hurting their efforts to manipulate and kind of subvert the Soviet Union from within. Uh, we saw big oil, the Eastern establishment and the intelligence agencies mobilizing against nuclear power and the military industrial complex. And we see the left kind of just reduced to being the foot soldiers of the Eastern establishment. Now, if you put into that uh, the understanding that it was the intelligence apparatus of the United States that created Silicon Valley and created the computer revolution, and it wasn't the market that did it. It was it was they realized they had more money to spend and they could engineer the United States being at the center of the computer revolution. And Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote his, his book about the technotronic era and how it could be through control of information that the United States could win the Cold War. Silicon Valley, uh, Microsoft, Google, all of these corporations, Amazon kind of sprung up due to geostrategic decisions that were made by the intelligence apparatus. And you can kind of see Silicon Valley, the tech monopolies and social media, you know, and the control of information coming from the West as an outgrowth of that Eastern establishment. And then you can also see Donald Trump and the, the, you know, the forces that have rallied around him as largely being the lower levels of capital. Uh, you know, his administration was largely a lot of millionaires and even billionaires who are not part of the club, not part of that Eastern establishment. You can see that that fight is going on. However, uh, for those of us who do believe in economic growth and those of us who do want peace with China and Russia and Cuba and Venezuela and all the countries that have been attacked, uh, it's starting to look like, uh, you know, being foot soldiers of that Eastern establishment puts us on the wrong side. Uh, and that the libertarian element, which I see is largely kind of an outgrowth of the John Birch Society and, and other, you know, kind of lower level of capital formations fighting against the Eastern establishment, they represent a strata that has a lot more to gain by getting along with the countries around the world that are struggling against Western domination. And they believe in economic growth. They have a lot more to gain and, and a lot more to lose at the hands of the Eastern establishment. And it seems like the left, we have, we have 
become foot soldiers of the wrong side. And that's how I see the rise of what we might call wokeism. Wokeism is very much an expression of people just kind of being the soldiers of, of, of the Eastern establishment, whereas the lower levels of capital and the new right, it represents kind of a revolt against the Eastern establishment by the lower levels of capital. But it presents a moment for a realignment for those of us who, who advocate socialism and economic growth and a better life for the working class. The way that I tend to see it is that people are sort of because the left has lost its bearings and it doesn't have a kind of a basis in an economic understanding of, of capitalism, left and right is, has become about, you know, sort of a particular affective orientation. So, you know, if you're a kind person and you care about the suffering of the innocent or whatever, um, then you're a leftist or people will say, um, well, it just seems obvious to me based that as a leftist, you're always looking for the most oppressed. And that's what somebody actually commented to me. You, you always look for the most oppressed. It's a complete lack of principle, complete lack of principle, because you're going to throw the people who were on your side yesterday under the bus today, you know, um, because you found a new, oh, glorious new subject. You have no idea why these people should be your revolutionary subject, only that they are the most oppressed. That wasn't Marx's idea. Like the workers were not the most oppressed. There were particular reasons why they were best placed to lead a revolution to understand the machinery of society because they were the ones who were mastering them. And but they were made by them. They were made by that. They were made by the machinery of this new society, and they were the masters of that new uh, machinery. They could be anyway. Anyways, um, and that's gone now. Um, and when you have that kind of affective orientation. Then any, then you are vulnerable to anything framed as kind, caring, and in favor of safety. And I see this happening all the time. If something is framed, like I thought it was just this basic thing, particularly as a Marxist, you learn to be um, suspicious of how things are framed by ideology, right? Um, and yet people are like, oh, yes, is it framed as leftist? Well, it must be leftist. And if you disagree with it, well, you must be a fascist then. That's, that's just how it works, obviously. Um, but what, what I see um, happening is the left often champions things that are about the neoliberal capitalist regulation of everyday life, um, a kind of um, a, a bureaucratic machinery that tries desperately to control individual behavior in a belief that that is ultimately at root when things go wrong. And which is very scary because as things go very, very wrong in capitalism, it becomes more and more desperate in terms of controlling people's behavior. And we do not fight, I don't think, sufficiently against that. So it's on the one hand, we don't believe in, in growth. We don't have a theoretical understanding of growth or the economy. Uh, and on the other, we don't have an understanding of human freedom. In fact, it's something that we see as quite risky and dangerous. And I wonder if you'd had anything to say about um, the kind of faith that we have, it, like the sort of lib part <laughs> of, of libertarianism. Uh, what do you think about human freedom and, and how we see it now? Well, as far as what, what you said about, about the most oppressed, uh, the Communist Manifesto itself says that, you know, the previous movements of history have all been movements on behalf of minorities. But the proletarian movement is a movement on behalf of the immense majority. Uh, that's the point he makes, that we are not fighting for some minority, some marginal group. We're fighting for the immense majority of humanity. Um, and, and that's kind of what defines it. And the struggle to uplift different oppressed groups is about 
bringing up the entire working class by breaking down the divisions uh, that have been imposed, the special oppressions that have been imposed on certain groups that hold back the entire working class, right? Marxism is a populist movement. It's a majoritarian uh, movement that strives to advance all of society, and it sees any oppression that a group faces as, as holding back the struggle of the immense majority. Uh, and that's not what we get, you know, leftism kind of turns into a, almost a victimology. Uh, you know, oh, look who's the most victimized. Look how the victimization uh, manifests itself in media. Look how the victimization manifests itself in, in culture and arts and, and the way people speak and the way people dress. And, and it becomes almost like a, a study in who is oppressed. And it's a kind of a, almost a worship of weakness, a worship of, of, uh, of, of how people can be victims, how people can be trained to see themselves as victims. And also, um, I talk a lot about how the reinvention of leftism, particularly in academia, uh, goes back to what the CIA brags about being one of its most successful programs, which was the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, where through the funding of Partisan Review magazine and Encounter in Britain, uh, and a lot of academic voices, they kind of redefined what leftism means by subsidizing various academics, uh, people associated with the Frankfurt School and others. And, you know, Susan Sontag, um, her essay, Fascinating Fascism, kind of defines strength as being fascist. Um, and she's going through the uh, the art of, of Lenny Reifenstahl, the Nazi filmmaker. She's going through this art exhibit that she made of the Nubia, these African tribes. And she's arguing that this this photo exhibit is fascist uh, because it glorifies strength, because it shows groups of people acting in unison. And she suddenly defines fascism not as capitalism in decay and not as an attempt to stabilize capitalism with heavy-handed repression, but rather as strength, uh, as groups of people working together. Uh, I mean, the way she defines fascism in that essay basically says that any kind of mass movement where people are coming together and working together to achieve a goal, when people are encouraged to be strong, when people are encouraged to be proud of themselves, to have dignity, all of that is fascist. Uh, and the left then, on top of that, celebrates the opposite, right? It celebrates uh, people that are being victimized. It celebrates people that are uh, perceived as as being, you know, somehow marginalized or oppressed. And uh, and it, it goes as far as saying that, you know, if you if you celebrate, you know, beauty in art, that is a fascist thing. We should be rather celebrating ugliness. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a real effort to kind of redefine uh, the values. They talk about how Jackson Pollock, his art was subsidized by American intelligence because he just splattered paint on a canvas. And that was seen as a healthy alternative to socialist realism or social realism, which was previously the school of art that the, the left had celebrated, you know, when Roosevelt was hiring workers throughout the United States uh, to, you know, paint, you know, murals in post offices. They were social realist paintings, right? Uh, that, that depicted workers, strong workers, building and constructing. Uh, well, the idea was that uh, well, that was unhealthy. That was somehow fascist. That was maybe even close to the socialist realism of the Soviet Union. So instead, we're going to have abstract art with people just splattering, you know, paint on a canvas, or we're going to have art that is either pornographic or depicts things that are gross. And that's, edgy and that's challenging social norms that's making people uncomfortable that's what it means to be an artist and that that so much of what has come to be defined as fascism by the so-called left is just just anything that reeks of strength optimism hope and beauty and what has been promoted by the left is anything that seems to be degrading people or pointing to their you know condition of being victimized or 
pushing people's boundaries, making people uncomfortable. Uh, there's been a whole challenge and this defining of fascism as an aesthetic and getting away from an economic understanding of what fascism is, is a very big part of it. I, I feel like that what, what people wind up doing is they, they having, again, lacking a kind of theoretical basis, they just sort of um, champion the opposite of things. You know, oh, so cap or, or even the opposite of like the ideology that's presented to you. So they're like, capitalism is about economic growth, which is not correct. But anyway, um, at a certain point, it undermines its own ability to keep growing. So we are for degrowth, you know, capitalism is about freedom. So we're about unfreedom. It's like all the, all the most horrible things. It's like, it's like becoming a communist because you re read Atlas Shrug, Shrug and, and sided with the enemy. Like yes. that, that, oh, that actually sounds great. No, no, it's a caricature, like Jesus Christ. But um, what winds up happening then too is that the, the working class becomes redefined as a potentially fascist force. And I think part of this is because there's a very powerful kind of ideology, particularly in America, um, which views and, and understands the Second World War as the outcome of unrestrained democracy. That it was the working class, you know, if you think about, um, I always picture in my head when I say this line, like um, Metropolis, do you ever see that movie that like, that filmmakers are just constantly referencing and mocking us? <laughs> I always think about the, you know, the, the woman like does the dance and all the workers, oh, lose their minds. And it's like, that's how we understand the rise of fascism. That the working class just kind of like lost their minds. Instead of realizing that what fascism actually was, uh, or obviously there's a distinction to be made between like national socialism and fascism in Italy and so on. But leaving that aside, it, essentially it was the mobilization of ideas that were already very powerful in the uh, cult amongst the sort of cultural elites. Not, not very powerful amongst the working class and they, and they, and the Nazis had a lot of trouble making inroads into the working class. Um, but these were ideas that were already very, um, very powerful. And so what winds up happening is instead of understanding like why this ideology became so powerful in the cultural sphere at a particular time, this, this like staunch anti-liberalism, we have a legacy of the second world war that understands you know, the Holocaust and so on as the outcome of workers who just like got a little too much democracy and lost it, <laughs> which is an incredible, um, incredible uh, insult to the working class. Sorry, you want to say something? Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. I've often criticized uh, Hannah Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which, you know, when I was a young college student reading it, I thought it was very profound. It was a message about nonconformity and being a free thinker. But if you actually look at it, it's it's very much a message that uh, is the idea that, you know, deep down, most working class people are potential Nazis. Right. Uh, the idea that Nazism flowed from some inherent flaw in human beings. Right. That deep down, human beings just all just have the potential to be cruel. It didn't flow from the breakdown of capitalism. It didn't flow from capitalism needing to reboot itself with mass destruction. Um, you know, getting rid of the economics of fascism. I mean, just saying that fascism is because human beings have these authoritarian impulses they can't control. And I mean, uh, Theodore Adorno in particular, his book, the, the Authoritarian Personality, which was promoted, this is a big Frankfurt School text that was promoted by, you know, intelligence with the, you know, Congress for Cultural Freedom Program. It basically says that there are people out there who have the ability to join mass movements. 
uh, to, to become part of a group, to work together to achieve a goal. And that is very dangerous because that's potentially fascism. And I, I see a continuity with uh, Leo Strauss, the intellectual father of neoconservatism. Uh, his work, Persecution and the Art of Writing, basically argues that, you know, history is driven forward by these great intellectuals, these philosopher kings in the Platonic sense, uh, who are persecuted by the mob, the vulgar mob of average people. Uh, who, if they get together, are all potential Nazis. And the equating of the Soviet Union and Cuba and uh, and China with Nazi Germany, saying that these are just variations of the same system. They're both totalitarian. Um, and they both are examples of what happens when the vulgar mob gets you know, emboldened to suppress the great intellectual. Uh, that narrative is very much what has become leftism. That has absolutely nothing to do with Marxism, Leninism with the Soviet Union or with with the general global anti or anti imperialist and communist movements that have existed. Um, it's a very toxic narrative that celebrates kind of the intellectual elite uh, that needs to control the masses of people who are all potential Nazis and potential authoritarian fascists deep down. It's a very, very toxic, toxic narrative. Um, and it, what's interesting is it seems to be shared by both the left and the right. The right emphasizes the economics of it. Right. Ayn Rand is talking about the great individual uh, who's being suppressed by the mob. You know, Howard Rourke, the brilliant architect who's being suppressed. Uh, the, the left is talking about, you know, sexual nonconformists or it's talking about different marginalized groups, how they're, you know, oppressed by the mob of people that are ignorant and bigoted. But it still kind of sees the bulk of humanity as the enemy. Um, and it sees some kind of enlightened, you know, special elite as the savior, whether it's, you know, the elite, you know, being the industrialists on the right, or the elite being the enlightened academics and free thinkers, and philosopher kings on the left. It still has this viewpoint that the masses are the enemy and the elites are the ideal and the masses need to be restrained from holding back the great elite. And I, I really see philosophical irrationalism in this. I see Nietzsche. Uh, and I see, you know, the belief in the, the Ubermensch. Uh, I mean, this is the Nietzschean. Because ironically, it's incredibly fascist. Yeah. It, this in their distaste for the masses. Is fascism, yes. Um, and actually, you've anticipated my next question, because it seems to me that this is actually a common ground um, between today's left and many liberals and libertarians, as well as the right wing. Um, that there, and, and even actually, it, you know, some of the countries that you mentioned, you know, China, um, where there is a creeping anti-democratic impulse. And I wondered if you had anything to say about that, more that sort of more general kind of anti-democracy. Well, what I point out to people is that freedom in any society is directly linked to development. And this is something that is frequently obscured. We are basically taught that freedom is a matter of morality. There are good societies that have freedom. There are bad societies that don't have it. You know, there are evil leaders in countries that don't allow freedom. And there are good leaders that allow freedom. And no one anywhere in the world was talking about human rights and the rights of man and anything like that until like the 1400s in Europe. And why is that? Were people just evil until then? You know, you know, until John Locke was born, everyone was just an authoritarian evil tyrant. And then suddenly in Europe, somebody became enlightened and realized that people should have freedom. Well, no, it's because freedom is linked to a level of economic development, right? I mean, you, you, you couldn't have the level of freedom that we have now in medieval times, uh, if you're having an agrarian economy with a very small life expectancy, with people barely being able to, you know, grow enough crops in order to survive, the idea that you could have everyone think and say and believe whatever they wanted, society would have fallen apart. And that it's economic development 
and growth that paves the way to more freedom and that there is a direct link and that when societies are underdeveloped and when they are impoverished, they tend to be much more authoritarian. And as societies develop and become more stable, uh, they become more free. Uh, and that, you know, in the United States, our constitution says that in a state of war or domestic insurrection, civil liberties go away. Why? Out of necessity. Because, you know, during the U.S. Civil War, you didn't have freedom of speech. During the Second World War, we didn't have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly because we were at war. But as society becomes more stable, uh, you have more freedom. And that link is not made. And that the road to freedom is economic development. And, and as societies become more developed, they can become more free. And I think that as China develops, it, it has become more free. There's way more religious freedom in China today than there once was. There's way more freedom of speech in China than there once was. But uh, they've come a long way because they've been rising up from nothing. Uh, they've been rising up from poverty um, and that that link isn't made. And then I would argue that as our economic conditions here in the West are becoming worse and as living standards are dropping, the life expectancy in the United States is the lowest it's been in 25 years at this point. We're becoming less free. Uh, and you can see that all around us, that I think the height of American civil liberties was probably during the 1960s, the Warren Court of the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, was was making rulings that honestly I, I wonder about. Right. I mean, Brandenburg versus Ohio. A Supreme Court ruling that basically says you can call and advocate violence as long as it's not imminent, right? I don't know any other country in the world that would advocate. It would say you can advocate acts of terrorism and violence just so long as they're not imminent. But there was a huge amount of, of civil liberties in the United States, uh, you know, uh, starting in the 1960s especially. But we've seen with anti-terrorism legislation since 9-11, uh, we've seen gradually that starting to be rolled back because U.S. society is becoming less stable and, uh, and there's more instability and that necessitates more authoritarianism. And as capitalism inevitably becomes more uh, unstable, you know, freedom goes out the window. This is a point that I stress endlessly. And I always recommend people read um, Isha Landa's, well, Fascism and the Masses, but also The Apprentice's Sorcerer, where he talks about the split between economic and political liberalism. Um, and that's where I part company with um, so many libertarians. And that's why I say like an honest libertarian will become a communist of necessity because what winds up happening is people will travel a path from libertarianism to a kind of anti-democratic um, conservatism because they don't truly believe in democracy. When it comes between uh, a choice, when it comes down to a choice between economic liberalism and political liberalism, they take economic liberalism, but they don't even really believe in economic liberalism because it requires, so in order to like, enable the freedom of the market, they must, you know, engage in enormous amounts of control <laughs> and fiddling and so on in order to kind of create the conditions for the, the fabled economic freedom. And so they become, they, they, they give up their commitment to liber liberalism. They give up their fundamental commitment to any kind of political liberalism, which is why I get very annoyed with people who think that the answer is, oh, well, you know, in capitalism, freedom's an illusion anyway. So who cares? And they're like, no, you've just taken, I've, you've just taken a shortcut to the same place where they end up. So what's the basis of your criticism? Um, but anyways, I, when you're talking about sort of the relationship between freedom and development, I wondered, uh, you don't necessarily mean a kind of, um, straightforward linear kind of freedom. Cause I, I mean, I, I know you've said this, but maybe it's worth stressing because I can just imagine people being like, well, the United States is much richer than it's ever been, but certainly it's not nearly, you know, it's not the freest it's ever been. 
well, it's not magical, right? It's not like automatic. I mean, obviously, the, the struggle to define civil liberties in any society is a constant negotiation. There's a constant uh, push and pull. People are constantly wanting more liberties. Uh, you know, different forces in, in government are trying to constantly push them back. And I mean, and this, this doesn't just apply to civil liberties. This kind of applies to, you know, all of human existence. There's a constant renegotiation. Uh, throughout human existence of how much we have to control our impulses, right? I mean, human society is kind of, you know, we exist and we control our impulses. We can't just do whatever we feel like doing. We control our impulses to some degree or other, uh, you know, uh, and and the manner in which we do that is constantly being renegotiated since the beginning of time. I mean, that's kind of the struggle of, of civilization. But I guess the point is that as a society becomes more prosperous and more stable, uh, the ability to allow for more freedom and allow people to make their own choices more and allow people to do things they didn't previously have the ability to do becomes uh, more of an option. Uh, it is possible to have a highly developed society with very little freedom. Um, and in theory, one could have a very underdeveloped society where uh, there was a high amount of freedom, but I don't think it would last very long because, you know, the, the struggle for everyday existence is going to mandate people cooperate with each other. And, and you know, you could you could mix and match. But generally, the trend of history is that the road to freedom is prosperity and development and the road to authoritarianism of any kind is instability in society, uh, impoverishment, uh, et cetera. As you're saying that, I was kind of imagining how people will root around in history or an imagined history for some ideal moment in which we were free, but also untainted by development, which um, led us away from our, you know, our true nature and, and, and made us alienated and all of that sort of thing. And um, so they'll, you know, I, I've even seen people kind of saying, you know what, feudalism wasn't that bad. <laughs> But the most obvious ideal, idealization is of indigenous people. Um, so they, these are the, the wonderful people who live in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But I mean, Marx says, uh, it's as ridiculous to long for a return to that imagined wholeness as it is to imagine with this complete emptiness all histories come to a standstill. You know, we are still engaged in storing up the conditions of our lives, of our freedom, and we haven't yet begun to live our lives. And as Marx says, so it, it's, it makes sense that we would long for some imagined past where we where we imagine that we truly live because we're stuck in a moment we're stuck in a void and we've not been able to move beyond it but it's foolish to long for that instead of having the courage to push forward into creating a real kind of freedom at a higher level of development that's our that's humanity's historical task well that's that's interesting i don't know as much about this as i would like to but one thing I have observed when discussing these issues with with leftists and others is that there's a huge amount of kind of idealization of indigenous people and assumptions that are made. Um, you know, the LGBT movement, for example, likes to talk about, you know, how there were tribes in America that had many different genders and it tries yeah. to give the impression that indigenous people were just so open and tolerant. And I've heard indigenous activists uh, say that, no, there was no homosexuality before the white man came. And that's just completely that's completely a projection. Um, I've also heard people argue that indigenous societies are just so non-authoritarian. Everyone could just do what they wanted. And I've had people say, well, no, actually, you know, when people are, are living, you know, in indigenous tribes and trying to depend on each other for survival, uh, these societies can be quite authoritarian and there can be quite a demand on people that they do the best they can to pull their weight to make sure that the whole group is able to survive. So I would be curious for, for your, your thoughts on that. 
Oh, well, it's funny because people will whine about cultural appropriation, but they've got no problem sticking their hands up a, a historical indigenous person's ass and using them as a puppet for their, <laughs> for their particular causes. And like, oh, well, you know, indigenous people had two spirit, da, da, da. And uh, you, know, you can't buy a pair of moccasins from somebody on a reserve and actually like let them have a fucking livelihood. Sorry, I obviously feel very strongly about this. Um, but, but you can, you can, steal their supposed history and use it to um, justify whatever it is you want to say about, you know, our society. But anyway, um, the other thing, too, is that it's extraordinarily racist because what you're doing is you're denying a full humanity to people and full humanity means good and bad. Uh, and so people that just become these sort of angelic placeholders for everything that you wanted. And I've written about this as well in the past where um, it, it also constructs the kind of present indigenous subject is permanently tainted because they have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And they're, and the only way that you can kind of go back to and, and achieve some kind of wholeness is not as a dynamic historical individual, but to go back and recover your culture. And, um, and conveniently, what is our culture is whatever present society stands up as this should be your culture, you know, <laughs> just whatever is trendy in the, in the current culture. But, you know, you'll get me on a rant about that. <laughs> but the most common kind of response that I get to these kinds of ideas, not just of what we're saying now, but sort of what we were talking about before, is, um, look, we can't develop anymore. We do have to find ways to live harmoniously with our environments. That's why they love indigenous people. That's why they um, put up the idea of the noble savage. They imagine that there was a time before the fall where we can be the guardians of that. Uh, and we have to go back. Humanity has gone too far um and it's just that is just a scientific fact that we 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 can no longer develop we have to learn some other way of being and that's why what draws people to communism what do you think about that response well that that's not communism that's julius evola uh julius evola <laughs> uh you know the italian fascist he wrote about the demonic nature of the economy how growth is inherently bad uh he wrote about how there is this ideal way um you know the organic state that that was the ideal way and we broke from that and and he admired the dalai lama of tibet because it was just this perfect society where everyone was born into their place and there was no strikes or protests and and he, he admired the caste system of ancient india the nazis also admired the caste system of ancient india that's why they used the swastika as their symbol they believed they were descended from the the people of india and that that this idea of trying to go backwards to find this perfect way of being and trying to reduce the level of consumption and reduce the population, uh, this is all fascist. This is not communist in any conceivable way. It has absolutely nothing to do with Marxist economics. And Marxism strict of economics is not Marxism, right? There's this big critique of, of economic determinism and that, you know, Gramsci was Pete Buttigieg's father, uh, who's basically responsible for the popularization of Antonio Gramsci in academia and, and Gramsci had a critique of economic determinism in his writing, but but stripping Marxism of economics and making Marxism just something about alienation. And, and at that point, you're not talking about Marxism anymore. I mean, Marxism is a fundamentally economic ideology that says capitalism has this problem of poverty created by abundance and that we need to overcome that by rationally planning the economy so we can get to a state of vast abundance. And we can eliminate social hierarchies and, and, and establish this, you know, this society of, of, of freedom based on vast abundance. And when you strip Marxism of economics, it just becomes this, this vague critique of society. Um, and that's what I, I see largely being promoted in academia these days is, is that. And, 
when they're saying that growth is bad uh, and that we need to somehow go back to an ideal way of being before growth, uh, that's fascism. That is the economics of fascism. I mean, I don't want to, I'll, I'll try to steal man the argument a little bit better because I, I, I suppose not everybody wants to go back to some idealized past. Um, but there is a very powerful current of like small is beautiful, um, uh, anti-industrialism, that sort of thing. Is there like um, a softer version of, um, or even just like an environmentalized kind of version of the left that you have more sympathy for? Well, you know, it's interesting because the degrowth crowd constantly move the goalpost. I have had people argue that, well, Caleb, degrowth isn't bad. Degrowth is working from home. And I've said, no, degrowth, that working from home is not degrowth. The fact that technology has advanced to the point that I can do my job without actually having to leave my house and that I can use electronics to accomplish the exact same tasks I would accomplish at the office without leaving my home, that's called growth. That's advancement. That's innovation, right? And they say, well, degrowth is using resources more efficiently. And I say, no, if we can use resources, if we can accomplish the same tasks by using less resources and do more, do so more efficiently, that's called growth because we're advancing. Degrowth is about having less. It is about having a less productive society, producing less, um, at, you know, having a lower life expectancy, having a lower population, uh, having the people that, that do live, live in, in worse conditions. Uh, that is what degrowth is and that they constantly like to play this game. And that, you know, in the, in the, um, the famous essay by Frederick Engels, well, he talks about the role of labor and the transition from ape to man. And he says that man is different than any other species in that, you know, other species simply interact with their environment, but man forces the environment to serve him. Uh, and he masters the environment. And that distinction, which is defined by labor, it's through his labor that man masters his environment, defines humanity. Um, and we have been constantly reinventing our relationship with our environment uh, to be more efficient. Um, and I mean, there's many examples you can give, but you know, if we were still burning, burning wood for heat, uh, we would have deforested the planet a long time ago. There would not be any trees left, uh, but we advanced uh, and we started burning you know, coal, and then we started burning fossil fuels and uh, we advanced, right? Um, and that, you know, I mean, there, there's a book called The Limits to Growth that was published by the Club of Rome. Uh, and it says that, you know, that, that we would be out of oil by now. Well, if we were still extracting oil in the same way we were extracting it in like 1970 when that book was published, uh, we would have run out of oil a long time ago. Uh, but we now have deep sea drilling. We now have hydraulic fracking. Uh, we can now extract oil in ways that we haven't. There are minerals that used to be completely worthless uh, in, in Africa that are now very, very valuable because they're in your cell phone and they're being used to make computer chips and that we are constantly reinventing our relationship with nature to be more efficient um, and to get a bigger payout in terms of energy uh, and in terms of production from nature. And that's the nature of humanity, right? And what China's doing with uh, fusion energy research and the way Russia and China have really pushed fusion energy research has been one of their defining, uh, you know, you know, advances to push to get to a higher mode, right? The way out of climate change and the way out of these problems is to reinvent our relationship with nature, to be more efficient, not less efficient. Um, you know, I've been critical. One of the major socialist groups in the United States, they're running on a platform. Uh, they say they would immediately uh, nationalize all fossil fuel energy corporations in the United States 
and reinvent them to be sustainable energy. They would replace every coal power plant in the United States, every every oil burning, you know, you know, fossil fuel burning entity in the United States with windmills and solar panel. What they're calling for is the United States to have at that point probably a third at most of the electricity that we have. That's genocidal. That basically means all the rural areas throughout the country are are not electrified. How is that progress and how is that socialist? Right. That would affect the working class. That would affect low income people. Uh, the urban elite would have electricity and the people outside the cities and lower income people would not. That's not socialist in any conceivable way. Degrowth in its essence is not socialist at all. And I think that 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 is a message that really needs to get out there. But it fits the agenda of the ultra rich, the Eastern establishment, the folks who have been pushing Malthusianism as a solution to the economic crisis. That's what they view as the way to solve it. There was a book, uh, I believe, you know, I, I use Margaret Sanger as a great example. Margaret Sanger was the founder of the Birth Control League, which is now called Planned Parenthood. She was a Marxist, uh, but after the Bolshevik Revolution, she went to the Soviet Union and she saw it wasn't the free love, free sex paradise she was hoping for. Uh, so she went to Britain and she made friends with the Rockefellers and she got involved in the Neo-Malthusian Society. And during the Great Depression, when the communists were organizing the unemployed to go out and demand jobs and healthcare and education, she was organizing the Birth Control League. And she was saying that the Great Depression was caused by overpopulation. She promoted a slogan, the cruelty of charity, uh, arguing that, you know, feeding poor people has them, you know, have more children. And that was the cause of the Great Depression. Uh, and she was speaking at Ku Klux Klan meetings and other events, urging birth control as a way to reduce the population and arguing that, that the Great Depression was rooted in human beings and their drive to procreate and their drive to, to grow and have a better life. And that the Malthusian worldview that is the basis of, of so much of what we're seeing, that is what calls itself leftism now. And that's simply not consistent. And I get frustrated with my libertarian friends because they often will say things, they'll quote Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Margaret Thatcher says, well, socialism doesn't work because eventually you run out of other people's money. Well, if all Mao had done in China was redistribute wealth that was already there, China would still be one of the deepest, you know, poorest countries in the world. Now China is the second largest economy on earth. All Stalin had done is redistribute other people's money, money that was already there. The Soviet Union would still be an agrarian, underdeveloped society. Socialism is about public ownership of the means of production and mobilizing to build and to construct, I talk about Libya under the leadership of Gaddafi, it had the second, uh, it had the largest irrigation system in the world, the highest life expectancy in Africa. Now that Libya has joined the free market, uh, it has been, you know, bombed into chaos. It doesn't even have full electrification any longer. And that revolution in Libya that, that brought Libya into the global free market system was promoted by leftists. I was in the Occupy Wall Street Park the day that uh, Gaddafi was killed. And I remember there was a big gap because among younger people who tended to be more Alex Jones influenced and conspiracy oriented and libertarian, there was a belief that Gaddafi was a great hero for trying to develop an independent African currency. And among the professional NGO left uh, that included Trotskyites and anarchists and people working for the big foundations, there was a celebration of Gaddafi's death because he was a dictator, uh, because he was an authoritarian, etc. And there was a real gap. And it was it was reflected, it was a class divide, right? These foundation trust fund kids who work for big foundations, uh, who, who become leftists as, as a job, as a way to pay their bills uh, and, and feel like they're social justice oriented and they're making a contribution to the world. They were the ones that supported the color revolution that destroyed Libya. And it was the working class people who tended to have more of a conspiratorial approach 
who tended to often see themselves as libertarian because they're seeing authoritarianism creeping into their lives, uh, they were the ones that opposed the destruction of Libya. I got into an argument with this incredibly rude, mean person on Twitter, and I couldn't believe, I was like engaging with this person in good faith, and he was like calling me a, all these names and that sort of thing, but he was absolutely certain that Marx didn't believe that there were um, that the limits to capitalism were simply internal. That it, and he had this kind of weird idea of like external, internal kind of limits. But I think that's one of the most important things that people need to understand about Marx's understanding of capitalism, is that the limits are internal to the system itself. And there's so much from bourgeois economics that we have imbibed now that people find it very difficult to understand that. So on the one hand, they'll say, oh, well, they think they're being critics of bourgeois economics by saying, oh, homo economicus is, is a myth. Actually, human beings don't act like that. Well, bourgeois economics agrees. That's how they explain why, why things go wrong. The economy is too good for you, too good for mere humans. Marx doesn't need that. You can presuppose the same liberal humanist subject and you will still have the same and, and the, the limits are internal to the system. Even in the perfect functioning of the system, the system of its own logic goes into breakdown. Pessimism has become almost the official ideology of Western society. Pessimism is everywhere in all different forms. Economic pessimism, oh, we just can't keep growing. Personal pessimism, that there's no point to life, uh, you know, human beings are just inherently cruel to each other. I mean, pessimism is just oozing from Western civilization right now. Um, and I would argue that that is, I mean, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, the, when we were kids, we used to play a game, King of the Mountain, where one, one kid tries to get to the top of the hill, right? And what essentially has happened is that the, the Western ultra monopolies, they've gotten to the top of the hill. Uh, they have, you know, dominated the world economy. You know, Wall Street is very much, it's oil bankers, right? It's ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron. It's Chase Bank. It's HSBC Bank. Uh, and, and the Western ultra monopolies have gotten to the top of the hill. And because they're there, history must end so they can stay at the top of the hill eternally. And history doesn't want to end. Countries around the world are rising up from poverty. They're asserting their independence. They're building infrastructure. You've got the Belt and Road Initiative out of China. You've got the Eurasian Economic Union. You've got the Bolivarian Alternative for Latin America. You've got, you know, these African countries that just broke with ECOWAS and are, are talking about unifying and, and, and cooperating with China to construct. Humanity wants to keep advancing. And the ultra-monopolies are saying, no, no, human humanity must stop advancing so that we can stay at the top of the hill forever. Human growth was great. Humanity was great. It was fun. But now it must end because of the environment or because of COVID or because of whatever. So we are going to lock down the global economy and no one can advance so that we stay at the top of the hill eternally. And the bulk of humanity is just not going to accept it because the nature of man is to grow. Human beings want more than they already have. And you then get into this argument with people and they say, well, aren't there aren't there limited resources on the planet? Aren't there limited resources in, in existence? It's like, yes. But our ability to continue reinventing our relationship with these resources, using them in more efficient ways, that's what defines our existence as human beings. And, and this desire, and, and it's almost like a religion with people. It reminds me, I grew up around a lot of conservatives and, you know, you'd argue with them about evolution or you'd argue with them about certain things and they just, they just insisted, you know, you just have to believe this. And the religion 
of especially the so-called left is this pessimism. No, there must be a limit to growth. No, human beings just can't advance. No, the problem is overpopulation. No, we're going to destroy the planet with our existence. No, that there can't be hope for the future. And, and it's almost like they are battling against the, the human part of themselves. And when I see the suicide rate that we have in the United States, when I see the opioid addiction rate and the way people are destroying themselves, when I see the psychological problems that young people have, I see it as this pessimism that is just pushed out in our society at such a, a, a massive rate. It's coming from your cell phone. It's coming from your TV. It's coming from your computer. Everyone is being told they must be pessimistic if they're not being pessimistic. If they're not being hopeless, uh, if they're not adopting this anti-human, anti-social worldview, uh, that they're somehow doing something wrong. And that is what we are really up against. And when I go to Russia and China and when I go to Venezuela and when I go to Iran, I hear the opposite. I hear a belief in humanity. I hear a belief in growth. Um, and so I, I think that that is really the battle of our time. It is the ultra monopolies and the ultra rich that are pushing degrowth to try and maintain capitalism in its monopoly stage, imperialism, and I see a whole world that is broken out of it. Uh, and I see the American working class and the lower levels of capital uh, that still believe in economic growth as potentially aligning uh, with the forces around the world against this and the, the struggle to create an anti-monopoly coalition kind of defining the battle of our age. That's in many ways uplifting. <laughs> um, that there is a kind of way out of this. And the fact, I think one of the things that makes people so annoyed with the working class is that they have been propounding a view of subjectivity of, of an, like what you should be as an ideal subject that is fundamentally weak and damaged, that understands itself as a risk, that constantly looks for expert guidance in terms of how life should be lived. And that says, you know, you're actually just a very weak, vulnerable individual. This world is moving so fast that like, you look at like PMC types, they're always just whining about the, uh, the ceaseless force of change, you know, that change is necessarily bad for you. Um, and, but the, what, the great thing about humanity is that we're extraordinarily adaptable and also the bad thing because, you know, it, it leads us to be um, terribly exploited and to withstand enormous amounts of exploitation. And, normalize it in her cultures and so on. Oh, right. Okay. Um, but most people do not see themselves in that way. Most people still stubbornly believe that they can have judgment, that they do have autonomy, that they are reflective and potentially um, they're reflective and free-willing human beings that are therefore capable of um, living in a democracy, of deciding how they're going to live their lives. And they hate that. Um, and those in power are constantly trying harder and harder to say, no, you know, you must understand as a, as a good citizen, you must understand that you're actually quite weak and feeble. And people don't like that. And if there is any kind of, any bit of light at the end of the tunnel, it's that stubborn refusal to accept yourself as a weak and broken subject. Um, but do you, yeah, sorry. Well, no, I mean, there are many examples of this where it's like the liberal order, uh, it tends to rule by de facto. Right. Uh, you know, we were told, for example, in the 1990s that Russia was free uh, because Boris Yeltsin was the president and it was a free country. And now we're told that Russia is a dictatorship because Putin is the president. Well, you know, in Russia in the early 1990s, they elected a government, uh, you know, that, that tried to stop austerity in the country. And then Yeltsin dissolved the parliament and then sent the military to shell the parliament and 186 people were killed. Uh, and then in 1996, uh, the USA worked very, very hard to make sure that Boris Yeltsin got reelected. They had all kinds of 
There's even documentaries bragging about it. The Clinton administration bragged one of their great achievements was making sure the Communist Party didn't win the 1996 elections in Russia. But that was called freedom because they were in charge. But then when Putin got in, uh, well, now it's a dictatorship, even though the majority of people voted for Putin and the economic reforms that Putin brought in were very popular. But it's a dictatorship because they're not in charge anymore. And there's many examples of this where, you know, if something is not under the control of the liberal order, it's declared to be authoritarian. Uh, and if something is under their control, that's just the way it's supposed to be. It's just natural. And that's that's kind of the way this is played. And that that this even plays out in everyday life. Right. Um, that, you know, if you make a choice, if you decide I am going to only consume this media, I am only going to live this way, I am going to start exercising. Well, that's you know, you're being authoritarian. You're being fascist because you're making a decision about your autonomy and your way of being. But if you just kind of go with the flow and let your existence be defined by what you see on Twitter and Netflix and, and you live your life as they direct it, then you're being free. Then you're thinking for yourself. I can't tell you how many times over the years when I was a, a young activist leafleting and handing out uh, literature about socialism and communism, people would say, I can't read that because I think for myself. Right. That was a really common response. Well, I can't read what you're handing me. I think for myself. Um, you know, and that, that think for yourself means doing what the liberal order wants. And if you break with that, then you're in a cult, uh, you're brainwashed, you're being authoritarian. Um, and that's the way that we've come to think about these things. Um, so it's a matter, I, I really tell people, it's really a matter of seizing control of yourself and saying, I want to live a certain way uh, and making a decision for yourself and not allowing yourself to just kind of have your existence guided uh, by all these mechanisms that they have created to just nudge you to live a certain way. It's really the struggle for freedom in our time and the struggle to develop strength. I mean, and this, this can go to like personal life in terms of like exercising and such, right? I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's a struggle to say, I will live my life as I choose to live it. And I will not just kind of go with the flow and let them guide the way I live my life. And people look at that and they say, well, that's authoritarian. That's fascist. That means, you know, especially if you're, you're you're joining a group of other people to live that way, you're in a cult, you're being brainwashed, you're being controlled. And that's the way the liberal order kind of operates. And and so it's it's understanding that if you just kind of go with the flow, if they if, if things are just as they're supposed to be, you're really allowing the most powerful people to rule that that rejecting their rule requires, at least on an individual level, asserting will. No, but don't you know it's for your own good? You know, it's for your own good. If you're left to your own devices, you're going to choose wrong. Listen to the expert. Right. And yeah, I will. They will empower you to be free in the right way. Okay. But you had said that uh, that you had a, a different idea of libertarian communism than perhaps that I had espoused in that previous video. But so far, um, with the exception of maybe like I don't know, maybe I'm less optimistic about particular countries like China, that sort of thing which is a whole other discussion, but um, I agree with what you're saying. So what, what, what if anything, is, is different in your conception of libertarian well, communism? Well, generally, people who call themselves libertarian communists uh, don't advocate a planned economy. Uh, they argue that, that worker cooperatives should be autonomous um, and that we can have you know, worker-owned enterprises that are autonomously created without state coercion and that you know, the worker is a, is a co-owner of the enterprise and that that's the road to socialism. But that doesn't address uh, the built-in problem of capitalism, the problem of overproduction. Uh, that doesn't address the problems of profits and command, right? You know, the problem with capitalism is the rule of the market and the rule of profits. It's not simply that, that the worker 
and the, the factory owner are, are not equal, right? That's one of the issues that Marx talks about, but it is not the fundamental problem. Uh, and that this kind of uh, fetishization of worker cooperatives, you know, worker cooperatives can be good, but the greatest examples of worker cooperatives are in communist countries. I mean, the, the biggest worker cooperative in the world is Huawei Technologies in China, right? It's a cooperative under Chinese law. Harvard Business Review called it the greatest example of profit sharing working. Uh, the collective farm system in the Soviet Union was cooperative. I mean, they, 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 there are cooperatives that exist in a socialist society, but the idea that, that we're going to overcome the problems of the market by just, you know, having an employee stock ownership program. Uh, that is my biggest, uh, you know, disagreement with the, the bulk of people who call themselves libertarian communists. They seem to believe that if we don't utilize state power, uh, if we don't, if we don't have the state on our side, um, you know, we can just kind of voluntarily on our own create these worker cooperative enterprises. And I, I just find that to be a complete illusion uh, that, that, you know, anarchism as a school of thought rejected all politics and argued that, you know, we just create socialism on the basis of voluntary association. Social democracy argues that, that capitalism just kind of naturally turns into socialism one step at a time. First, we have public schools, then we have labor unions, then we have free health care and one thing to another, the West just kind of naturally gets to socialism. But the Marxist understanding, Marx and Lenin all the way up to 21st century socialism, Deng Xiaoping theory, et cetera, is that this is a struggle for political power. The state is in the hands of the capitalists at this time, of the elite, and that it is a struggle to mobilize society to take control of the state so the state can oversee control of the means of production and create a planned economy. And that's that's what I think the answer is. We need a government that fights for working families, right? I, I've used the slogan, we need a government of action to fight for working families, right? Right now we have this notion that the government is best, that governs least. We want a weak government that just kind of rolls over and lets the big monopolies rule for us. What if we had a government that was fighting for us against Jeff Bezos and against the elite and was fighting to rebuild the country and strengthening small business owners? And the other thing that I, I point out when I talk to my libertarian friends is that, you know, if you're a small business owner, you must admit that the countries that are the best to the small business owners are the anti-imperialist and communist countries. Nicaragua, the strength of their socialist economy is their micro entrepreneurship program. I've been there and they have a huge number of worker cooperatives and the government is constantly loaning money to people to start their own small business, to grow and develop and put their ideas into practice in accordance with an overall state central plan. Uh, and the same for the Russian government, the same for the Chinese government. They, they are constantly cultivating and promoting small business owners to exist as part of an overall plan for strengthening society. Whereas here in the West, where we supposedly believe in capitalism and the free markets, the small business owners are being crushed and it's the ultra monopolies that are securing their grip on power and the state is helping them to do so. No question about it, but, uh, but, but we're not seeing the state actively promoting uh, the, the role of the small business owner. And I think that that's, you know, you know, the Soviet Union is never coming back. The Soviet way of doing things, it had its great successes. That way of doing things gets countries over the first hurdle, right? It industrializes. It builds a power grid. Uh, it wipes out illiteracy. It builds a modern education system. It paves the roads. But once you reach that, that, that level of industrialization, that's when socialism begins to have its problems. Post-World War II in the Soviet Union, you started to have, you know, some level of stagnation. And China, by developing Deng Xiaoping theory and by implementing the market, they were able to overcome the, the kind of the, the problems that come after that first hurdle that comes with the, the Soviet model. And that 
countries like North Korea, countries like uh, Venezuela, countries like Nicaragua, they're trying to move toward uh, the more Chinese or Vietnamese model where you have a market sector that exists in coordination with an overall state central plan. And, and Vietnam is another great success story where they have a state centrally planned economy, but they have a lot of you know, entrepreneurs, a lot of small business owners, and the state works really, really hard so that those folks can flourish so the overall economy can flourish. That always makes me laugh, like, um, when Canadians go to Cuba and they look around and they're like, mm, so much poverty, that's socialism. But they go anywhere else in South America, they see poverty and they're like, look at these people in a state of nature. Help, help. <laughs> like, like as if they, these, these places are not capitalist. So everything that happens in, so everything bad that happens in socialism is the fault of socialism. Everything bad that happens in capitalism is simply human nature or nature or misfortune or something. Um, so I, I'm kind of sympathetic to some of this, but what, what people say is that China isn't this, you know, this, we don't, we don't see these libertarian communist utopias in these countries. China is authoritarian capitalism. What would you say to that kind of argument? Well, capitalism is the rule of the market, right? Capitalism doesn't just mean people have money. Capitalism doesn't just mean that, uh, that inequality exists. Uh, capitalism is when profits are in command of the economy. When production is carried out for profit, China has five-year economic plans, and even private companies in China are not free to do just whatever they want to make profits. Uh, it's about 50% state ownership, a higher rate of state ownership than Venezuela. So if you think Venezuela is socialist, China definitely has to be socialist because it's got a much higher rate of state ownership. But then on top of that, the private companies, uh, they are subsidized by the government and incentivized to operate in certain ways. And then the state can also just step in and tell them what to do at any time. Uh, so I, I, that's not capitalism, right? Um, I give the example of the 2015 uh, stock market crash in China, right? The stock market went down like 60 points uh, in, in one day. Um, and if such a thing were to happen in the United States, there would be riots in the streets. Uh, you know, food would stop getting delivered. The electricity would go off, right? In China, the stock market went down by 60 points. Uh, and it didn't really affect the country that much because most of the country is not tied in with that stock market. Um, and then the Chinese Communist Party called up all the uh, major shareholders and told them they would be arrested if they engaged in any sh uh, short selling. Uh, betting against the stock, you know, uh, you know, going up, betting that a stock would go down. If they did that, they would be arrested. Uh, State-owned industries froze the selling of stocks. And within a week, uh, the stock market was right back up where it had been before, uh, as if nothing had happened, because the market isn't in control. And most of society was completely insulated from the effects of the market turbulence. That's not capitalism, right? Um, are there things about China that need to be improved? Are there problems in China with corruption, with... Uh, with, 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 you know, authoritarianism and a lack of freedom in everyday life. I'm sure that there are many things one could critique China over. But the fact is they have a largely centrally planned economy. And with that centrally planned economy, they have created a huge amount of economic growth. Um, and, you know, again, when I argue with libertarians, one argument I frequently get is they say, well, China, you know, China, uh, it was poor when it was communist. And now it's capitalist and, and it's free. And that proves that capitalism is the answer. And I tell people that that would be like arguing, you know, I was cold in my bedroom the other night, so I turned on the heater um, and it got better in my room. So therefore, I should light my room on fire because more heat is always the answer. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's you know, I mean, yes, China needed to adjust the way they were operating during the 1970s was not correct. And they were arguing at that point, you know, that that you could somehow achieve full communism without economic growth. Uh, the theories of the gang of four 
Uh, they argued that uh, you could achieve a higher stage in poverty. And they were arguing that as long, and that's the trap that a lot of communist countries fell into during the Cold War, because they were surrounded, because they were locked out of the global economy, because they were barricaded, they fell into the trap of trying to create an egalitarian society in poverty. And this was everywhere. Pol Pot is the most blatant example of this. Uh, but you saw it with Che Guevara in Cuba and his theory of the new socialist man. You saw it even in the final years of Stalin's life, where he said that the Soviet Union was entering the early stages of communism, which they were clearly not. They were still a socialist society that was struggling to exist, you know, in a global capitalist market. This idea that you can create a completely egalitarian society in poverty and you can create it with state coercion and you can create it with willpower, that if the state just forces people to be equal, if the state just forces people to live in an egalitarian way, you can create full communism that way. Well, no, if you read critique of the Goitha program, Marx makes it clear that the, the road to an egalitarian society is abundance, that, that it, is, it is necessary to have abundance in order to break down class division. And that was lost during the Cold War. And many of the, the atrocities that we associate with communism, you know, like the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, like the, the great purges in Russia in the 1930s, uh, like, you know, you know, Pol Pot and his year zero and all of that. What the basis of that was, was this attempt to kind of build an egalitarian society with state power, with force, not on a material basis. Um, and that a lot of what those folks were doing was actually very similar to what was done after the French Revolution with the reign of terror. Right. Because it was a similar thing. The French Revolution, there was no economic basis to it. It was just we're going to build an egalitarian society. And with the Committee of Public Safety, et cetera, with state violence and repression, they were trying to create some kind of egalitarian society. And that was the reign of terror. And it didn't go very well. And you cannot create an egalitarian society with with force. You can create an egalitarian society and a free society with economic development. Well, of course, Engels said that when people say things like that, have these people ever seen a revolution? It's the most authoritarian thing imaginable. Sure. So, I mean, revolution would be, and, and the example that you gave with China is, um, you know, through a kind of, you know, libertarian would see that as kind of taking away people's freedom. So is this not, does that kind of contradict what you've just said about sort of creating a, a situation of freedom from unfreedom? Well, I, I would argue that as China has developed, it's become more free. Uh, and I would argue that, that the Cultural Revolution, which was an attempt to, you know, impose on society a very egalitarian agenda, was not successful. And that when you, you have, you know, it's one thing to have public ownership of the means of production and essentially planned economy. But it's something very, very different to try and eradicate, uh, you know, all, all, you know, non-communist ideas from society. It's another thing to have people spy on their coworkers and, you know, turn in their neighbors and, you know, you know, that that's a completely different thing. Uh, and those are the those attempts to kind of, you know, mobilize society to root out anyone with with a contrary view that that is that's something that very much hurt the development of socialism and and laid the basis for the the overthrow of, of communism. Right. I mean, the Eastern Bloc, it was the intellectuals. Uh, it was the college professors, the engineers, the doctors. It was not the majority of society that overthrew socialism in the Eastern Bloc. It was the layer of people that were skilled that were professional, that were trained, that, that got university education, that felt stifled by a society uh, that didn't really have room for them to innovate and create. Um, and it was those people that were recruited, you know, that were supporters of Dubček during the, the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, that were supporters of the color revolutions that eventually brought down the Eastern Bloc. But in China, uh, they recruited all those people, right? After the death of Mao, um, you had uh, the death of Zhou Enlai, or I think it was just prior to the death of Mao, you had the death of Zhou Enlai, 
Zhou Enlai died, uh, and the young intellectuals went out and rioted after the death of Zhou Enlai. You had the Tiananmen incident of 1976. Um, and it was, was after that, you know, and then you had the death of Mao, and then you had Deng Xiaoping who came to power, and he talked about how, you know, there were a lot of people in China who were very skilled, you know, lawyers, professors, you know, scientists who could be making more money, who had new ideas, and that socialism needed to find a way to capture those people's energy uh, rather than suppressing them. And those, so that layer of society that, would, that was the basis of the counter-revolution, the overthrow of socialism, in Eastern Europe became allies of the Chinese Communist Party and have enabled it to to grow and flourish. And that uh, I think that that is that is what we're looking at there. Um, and that, you know, people remember the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Revolution when there were a lot of executions. People don't remember those as good times in their history. That was a very ugly time. Uh, you know, people don't remember 1936, 37 as a good time in the history of, of the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, the industrialization in the early 30s was good and such. But but that great terror when people were turning each other in and people were uh, afraid and secret police were dragging people away in the middle of the night and gulags and all that wasn't good. The Cultural Revolution was not good in China. And when you're when you're trying to create an egalitarian society with pure force, that's a recipe for disaster. And that is Jacobinism. That's not Marxism. And that, that is also the ideology of the woke left. That's what they're doing. They don't want to change the economic base of society. They just want to enforce on society that everyone must be not racist, not sexist, not homophobic. And we're going to, with cancel culture and with public shaming, force onto society our egalitarian agenda. And they have taken economics out of it. And it's rather just this kind of this mobilization of the mob to create an egalitarian society. That's what they want. And that's Jacobinism. That's not Marxism. Mm. Um, I've kept you longer than I said I would. So this will be the last question. No problem. Sorry. Um, so you mentioned before about um, libertarian communists kind of having a perhaps fetishizing worker cooperative, that sort of thing. And this is always the danger when you try to redefine or repurpose um, political labels for your own usage. Um, you have to engage with this baggage. Um, but I often refer to myself as a libertarian communist to the extent that labels are useful and all that stuff. Um, because I am not a libertarian socialist because I don't know the way forward. I don't know. I know what is possible. I just, and I don't know the way to get there. And I've wondered what is your vision of what is possible and how to get there? We need to create an anti-monopoly coalition. You know, this book I have, it's from 1949. This was the leader of the Communist Party of the United States, William Z. Foster. He published this book, The Twilight of World Capitalism. And the Cold War had just started. And in the book, he kind of lays out his vision of how the Communist Party could come to power in the United States. And what he called for was the creation of an anti-monopoly coalition of, of the working class, the small business owners, uh, the different people in society who didn't want war, who wanted peace, who wanted economic development, all of them coming together and defeating the war makers and electing some kind of uh, you know government that was in opposition to the forces that were pushing for, you know, World War III at that point against the Soviet Union and were pushing McCarthyism and police state repression. Uh, and he envisioned, envisioned an anti-monopoly coalition as the road to, to victory. And the Henry Wallace campaign for president in 1948 was kind of seen as their attempts to build an anti-monopoly coalition. Henry Wallace had been vice president under Roosevelt. He was opposed to McCarthyism and the way the country was going. And so he ran for president. He broke with the Democratic Party in 1948 and he ran for president on a platform of civil rights for African-Americans, supporting labor unions, and peace with the Soviet Union. And they were trying to build an anti-monopoly coalition. Um, and if you look at the Chinese flag, 
right? The Chinese flag, we've got that big star, which stands for the Communist Party. And then there's four other stars. And those four stars stand for the block of four great classes. Uh, and it was the peasants, the workers, uh, the, the urban middle-class capitalists, and even the national bourgeoisie, the national capitalists, all of whom were united by the Communist Party in their struggle to raise China up from poverty. And what we need in the United States is an anti-monopoly coalition. We need those lower level capitalists who right now are supporting Donald Trump or the new right. We need the labor unions. We need the small business owners. We need forces in this society who reject degrowth and want the economic rebirth of the country uh, to come together and manifest themselves in some kind of anti-monopoly coalition. And part of doing that is realizing that Russia and China and Venezuela and Iran and Nicaragua and all these countries that have been locked out of the global economy, the reason they're locked out is they want economic growth and they want to break out of the, you know, the dying Western imperialist financial system and that they have natural allies and that some kind of anti-monopoly coalition uh, is the answer. The Center for Political Innovation, we've put forward a four-point plan. One would be a mass mobilization to rebuild the country, something like what Roosevelt did with the Works Progress Administration. Hire the unemployed, hire the young people and send them out to build new roads, new universities, new power plants, new hospitals, et cetera. Mobilize the country to be rebuilt. Step number two would be public ownership of our natural resources. You know, oil and gas and coal and timber, the natural wealth of the country should be used to benefit the country, not just benefit, you know, private owners on Wall Street who happen to have a piece of paper that says they own it. Step three would be the creation of a national bank and, uh, you know, the elimination of debt and a bank that lended money strategically in a plan to economically rebuild the country. Uh, the nationalization of credit and the centralization of credit in the hands of the state and the lending of money strategically in order to have economic growth. And then step number four would be the enactment of some kind of economic bill of rights uh, that would include education for the population, health care for the population, but also employment. Uh, and enacting an economic bill of rights. And those four things, um, you know, they wouldn't add up to socialism per se. But in order, if you were able to defeat the power of the big oil monopolies, if you were able to defeat the power of the big banks and institute a national bank uh, and uh, eliminate debt, if you were able to mobilize the country to rebuild and enact an economic bill of rights, at that point, the working class would have so much power. And the power of the big corporations and banks would be so defeated that you'd be pretty much on the road to socialism. Uh, and so that four-point economic plan that, that people from all different sectors of society could be convinced to support, that the small business owners would benefit from, that the lower levels of capital would benefit from, that the, the working class people who are conservative would benefit from, the working class people that are socially liberal would benefit from, the, you know, the different ethnic communities would all be benefiting from this kind of economic reboot of the country with kind of state central planning. Uh, that, is, that is what we would argue is the road to creating some kind of anti-monopoly coalition. Um, but ultimately, what needs to happen is there needs to be an awakening of working people. They're going to need to start to, you know, assert themselves and take responsibility for the future of their country. Uh, and if you look at the socialist revolutions that have always happened, they've involved the population being mobilized and community organizations and people in their neighborhoods and in their communities coming together and asserting themselves and deciding that they are going to take responsibility for the future of their country. So. You know, we ultimately needed an awakening of de democratic participation and involvement of the people. Um, that's ultimately what's needed. And we hope with the Center for Political Innovation to stimulate the conversation that could lead to something like that. But what's going to happen is going to be way bigger than we are. And that, you know, you know, a lot of people, I see this dual delusion among people who call themselves socialists and communists. On the one hand, they have it in their minds that they are the one 
you know, they are the vanguard. They have the correct interpretation. If Marx were alive, he would be in their group. They are the one. They've got it. And then on the other hand, I see people say, you know, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. We just have to kind of vote for the liberals because the Republicans are fascists. They're so scary. There's nothing we can do. It's hopeless. Neither of those things are true. Neither of those things are true, right? Nobody who calls themselves a communist or a socialist in the West right now has any base among the population, has any popular support. No one's the Bolsheviks. No one has the one true interpretation, okay? We are a marginal layer of this society. At the same time, there's plenty that we can do, and that is to mobilize and go to people with a program. That is to spread the truth about these ugly wars. That is to connect with the people that are rejecting the authoritarianism that's being imposed in their everyday lives. There's plenty that we can do to change the course of history. And our small organization, the Center for Political Innovation, we've done a huge amount in our small time of existing with our small amount of resources. We've done a huge amount to change the course of, of political you know, development in this country. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes at how much we've been able to accomplish because we've dared to go out and do it. And there's so many people that call themselves socialists and communists in the United States. Uh, they are, they're, they're almost like, it's like Moby Dick. They're chasing a, a white whale. If we can just take over the Democratic Party, if we can just take over the academia, if we can just take over alternative media, if we can just take over the labor unions, then we can do something. No, just do it. Center for Political Innovation has been founded on the premise that we don't have to wait for anyone to put a crown on our head and anoint us the one and give us permission to do it or give us some access. We just do it. We, we have organized our organization. We have put on conferences. Uh, we have had events. We, we are just doing it. And we're not waiting for anybody's permission to just do it. And that has inspired people. So that's what we're about. That's great. I have so much that I want to still ask you because I think, well, what do you think about the farmers? Because you know that I'm part of MCC Brussels, right? So this is a conservative think tank. Oh, and, okay. I didn't know that. And oh, yeah. So this is why people call me a fascist. Oh. <laughs> side note. Um, but they were like the only, they were the only people who were fighting on the side of the farmers, for instance, while everybody else is calling them fascists. Anyway, so there's so much I want to talk to you about. Gosh, I'm going to have to have you back. Um, but is there, are there any questions that I didn't ask that you wish I would have asked? No, I think we pretty much covered it, but I would love to come back and talk about the farmers because I support the farmers. I think that we need more food now, not less, and that, you know, degrowth policies in agriculture are, are negative. Uh, the idea that we should have less food now, not more, is just asinine. And the arguments people use, well, these farmers are right-wingers, these farmers are racist and all of that, that's not the essence of the argument. Should we have more growth and expansion of the agricultural sector or not? Uh, that's the issue. And if you're someone who generally cares about the working class and generally cares about the people of the world, you want more growth. You don't want these organic policies that wrecked Sri Lanka, that wrecked so many countries around the world. So, you know, and, and again, this is the lower levels of capital increasingly coming into a confrontation with the Eastern establishment, with the ultra rich and their agenda of degrowth. This is exactly what I wrote my book about. Oh, brilliant. So I'll have, we'll have to have a whole discussion about that. And I've actually got um, another another podcast on this exact topic coming up so thank you so so much for taking the time to speak with me especially on a saturday and then such short notice um i'll go ahead and end the recording now all right okay okay so that was the caleb Moppin interview um in about oh eight to nine minutes we'll be starting the second stream in uh the the parrot room uh, on our Patreon, where nine of you, uh, nine patrons, uh, will be able to to join the stream and discuss this conversation. There's a lot to discuss. Um, 
you know, obviously I'm a, some sort of left com, so I'm not a, a big fan of, of everything that Caleb Maupin had to say. Um, I didn't see him as particularly fascist, but uh, some people in the chat did. We can talk about that. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing all your faces or, you know, if you don't want to show your face, you can just keep your camera off. But, yeah, join us in the Parrot Room. Join me in the Parrot Room and everyone else who will be there. And uh, thanks for watching the, the interview. We'll, we'll, we'll be talking about it shortly. In the case of nuclear or radiological fallout, people living around...